I'd like to open today by sharing a story called The Rabbi's Gift. There was once a vibrant monastery that in recent years had fallen on hard times. Once a community full of life and learning, the synagogue had begun to receive fewer and fewer visitors, and the order of monks started to dwindle and was now down to only five. Desperate for advice on how to save his dying order, the leader of the monastery, the abbot, ventures out to find the wise rabbi in the neighboring woods. When he arrives at the rabbi's hut and explains the purpose of his visit, the rabbi only nods his head and listens, and he provides no concrete advice on how to save the order. I'm sorry, says the rabbi, but truly I have nothing to offer. I will say, however, that the Messiah is among you. Now go and return home. Devastated, the abbot shares with his fellow monks that the rabbi has been no help and had little to offer other than a curious comment about the Messiah being among them. Over the following weeks and months, the monks ponder the significance of the rabbi's words. Surely the Messiah couldn't be one of us here at the monastery, thinks Brother Thomas. But if he is among us, well, he must be speaking of Father Abbott. Father Abbott has served us nobly for more than a generation. Brother Philip starts to wonder. He was speaking of Father Eldred. <coughs> sure, old Father Eldred gets short-tempered at times, but he is a man of wisdom and seems to always have a valid point to make when discussing important matters. In the meantime, Brother Eldred begins to take notice of the many selfless deeds Brother John does each day often when John thinks that no one is looking. Brother John is always sweeping the synagogue after we have left and tidying things up. Perhaps Brother John is the Messiah, but surely it is not Brother Joseph. Joseph is so timid, a real nobody. But then again, as if by magic, he's always there when one of us needs a friend. Maybe Joseph is the Messiah. And Brother Joseph is convinced that any of the other four monks very well could be the Messiah but surely not me, he thinks. Of course the rabbi wasn't thinking of me. I'm just an ordinary person. But what if it is me? Please, God, don't let it be me. I can't mean that much to you, can I? As the monks begin to reflect deeply about who the Messiah might be, they begin to see each other in a new light and treat each other with extraordinary respect. They begin to treat themselves with extraordinary respect on the off chance that each monk himself may be the Messiah. They put a little bit more love into scrubbing the floors, and spend a little bit more time reading scripture, writing their sermons, and noticing all the many things each of them does so well. And slowly but surely, people in the neighboring villages begin to sense a special aura about the monastery and the respect that surrounds each of the monks and fills the halls of the synagogue. And so more and more people begin to come to visit and pray and they bring their family members and their friends to witness to what a special place the monastery is. No one can really explain why, but there is an empowering atmosphere that leaves people feeling joyful and full of dignity and purpose. A year later, a visitor asks Father Abbott if he can stay and join the order, then another <coughs> and another. And soon, thanks to the rabbi's gift, the monastery once again grows into a thriving community, a place full of peace, love, and hope. In the story of the rabbi's gift, we see the way that respect empowers others, makes them feel worthy, 
and encourages them to live closer to their best self. It's about the power that giving and receiving signs of respect has to transform a community. Two Sunday, Sundays ago, the opening lines of Psalm 133, Ecce Quam Bonum, which I know well as the motto of my alma mater, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It is good and pleasant, but it doesn't come ready right out of the box. For a community to thrive, it takes a great deal of care and requires action. I've heard respect described as a kind of love we do, as opposed to a love we feel. Showing respect to someone means you act in a way that shows you care about their feelings and their well-being. At camp, I may want to rush to my bunk after table duty, but when I hit the doorway, I'm going to slow down and take off my shoes and walk quietly because I care about others' desire to rest without interruption. Most of the time, someone sweeping a dorm will say yes if I ask if I can walk on their duty to get to my bunk. But I ask anyways because I care about the work they are doing and their feelings. In the thick of a moment, I may not agree with a particular rule or decision, but I adhere to it and accept it gracefully, gracefully because I want to show my counselors, teachers, parents, or peers that I value their wisdom and their best intentions. In all of these examples of respect, people are stepping outside of their default modes and acting in a way that shows they care about others. Living in community is not always easy. I think we can get a sense from the story that the monks may not all be the same age, they may not always agree, they may be prone to pass judgment on one another. It is only as they begin to focus their attention on the good inside of each other that these walls begin to go down, allowing for the community to prosper. Strong relationships are at the center of any good community, and it is ultimately the treating of one another with respect that is the glue that ties them together. We all have individual tastes and see things from a unique perspective. It's highly unlikely that you will live or work in community with a group of people who are exactly like you. Mr. Vinny likes to quote the line, when everyone thinks alike, nobody thinks. It's common knowledge that a diversity of thoughts and different opinions breed better ideas and smarter outcomes. But with differing ideas and opinions, there is also often conflict. Earlier this year, I heard a graduation speaker speak about his business in Cairo, Egypt. He spoke about the culture of pluralism in his law firm and his practice of hiring lawyers based on merit, regardless of socioeconomic background, race, religion, sexual orientation, or belief system. It meant that he had hired many people with distinct and often conflicting worldviews. For example, he hired people who believed women should not be veiled, and those who believed they should be. He hired those who supported the veil because of a traditional view that women are a source of temptation that leads to sin, and those who saw the veil as a source of feminist empowerment. He hired Christians, Muslims, and atheists, deeply committed liberals, and also people who supported the virtues of an autocratic state. In all things, he hired from all sides. While messy and contentious at times, the community and his law firm held together because each person respected others' rights to live with different belief systems and ideologies. <coughs> they respected each other's rights to think differently. As a business, his law firm stood out because with such a diverse team, they were able to relate with clients from all walks of life and with so many competing ideas to grapple with and negotiate, each lawyer was pushed to come up with fresh, innovative solutions. 
In his words, this cultural pluralism was able to flourish in our small legal community thanks to the steady application, day after day, year after year, of principles of diversity, respect, tolerance, compassion, teamwork, and hard work. The steady application, day after day. It takes hard work to build a community of people who are all so different. Respect is one of the greatest community building tools we have in our toolbox. To make the right fix, it can often take a little bit of tactfulness, which is an important element of respect. The way you say something determines how well it will be received. We have all met people who take pride in saying, I'm the boss, or I just tell it like it is. If Kirk or Bubbles just told me like it is at the waterfront, I promise you I would not still be here today. <laughs> when giving me advice or directing my attention to things I miss or things I could have done differently, they have always been truthful but tactful at the same time, treating me like I know what I'm doing, even if sometimes I make mistakes. Hey, Rich, what would you think about this? Rich, I noticed <coughs> this, and I wanted to get your take. As a result, they have made their points, but also not made an enemy in the process. I am more open to listening and receiving their feedback because of the respect and grace that I've been shown. Being really blunt and shooting people down in order to get credit for a point or to sound clever says I could care less about you and I don't care about your reaction. Closer to meanness than truthfulness. Not respectful and will cause others to tune out your ideas no matter how good they are. Through our tact and respect for others, we want to build others up, not to destroy, but to help others grow wiser. Showing respect in the way we approach one another reduces friction and creates bridges between our different understandings of the world. Coming back to the story of the rabbi's gift for a moment, remember that brother Joseph, who at first begins to doubt that he might be the Messiah. Please don't let it me, he thinks. Don't let it be me, he thinks. This is the imposter syndrome Mr. Vinny referenced after Henry Anderson's tree talk. The thought that I don't deserve this. I'm not buying my own self-worth. If my achievements impress you, then I must be a fake. When he is shown respect by his peers, Joseph then starts to think, maybe it is me. He starts to respect himself more. Jesus said, love thy neighbor as thyself. To respect and love others, it starts with loving and respecting yourself. My mother, who was a Camp Onaway roommate and friend of Mr. Vinny's sister, Kathy, likes to tell the story of visiting the Broderick family in New York City when she was a teenager, when Mr. Vinny's father was the police commissioner. For one reason or another, maybe missing a stop sign in the car, they were pulled over by a police officer. And my mother remembers Mr. Broderick saying, well, this should be interesting. And the officer takes the license and, horrified, he clearly recognizes who he has just pulled over. And he's talking about it with two or three cops outside of the patrol car. And finally, the officer returns and he says a bit timidly, well, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to issue you a ticket. What my mother remembers distinctly is how Mr. Broderick calmly and simply told the officer, good, you've done your job. In this instance, Mr. Broderick showed respect for the officer's work, allowing him to continue on doing what was right without fear or needing to second guess his convictions. He showed that respect is not something you dole out arbitrarily based on status, that it goes both ways, 
and in fact ties people together who are on different platforms in life. And he also showed that when you have self-respect, the honest feedback of others does not need to be threatened. Still yet to catch Mr. Vinny with an untucked shirt, but uh, I think the you could say that uh, the apple has not fallen far from the tree. <laughs> Loving and respecting yourself is made more elusive by our accomplishment-driven culture. When we see self-worth as something we need to earn, and we compete and compare our achievements with others, when we believe our deeds and our titles are what make us worthy of respect. We look to external evaluation of our deeds and have an external sense of success rather than an internal one. As we heard in the story Hayes read about the temptation of Christ, Jesus is tempted by Satan three times. When he refuses the first two temptations, Satan leads Jesus to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem. And looking out over all the kingdoms of the earth, he says, power over all that you see will be yours. All you have to do is jump. This is a test of Jesus' faith. It's also a test to see how badly he wants to be popular how badly he wants the glory. Imagine if Jesus jumps. It would have been the most miraculous stunt ever pulled, a surefire shortcut to fame and glory. Picture the headline. Bearded man in long tunic leaps off mountain and walks away without a scratch. Video reaches over 100 million views in the first 10 minutes. Like Jack mentioned last week, the lure of popularity, the desire to be cool and to be accepted, is one of the greatest temptations we are confronted with in daily life. Not just for young people in school, but for adults too. It's nice to be liked. It's nice to be popular. And it's safe to say few people wake up in the morning hoping to be unpopular that day. The issue with popularity is that it's often determined by external factors. Recognition from peers, the way we dress, the language we use, how we treat others. Primarily based on surface appearances rather than the admirable qualities that lie within us. Qualities we all share. The problem here is that there are so many tempting shortcuts that we can take in order to achieve these ends. In order to gain the world, just, might, just what might we do? In order to earn praise for an achievement, will you lie or cheat? In order to be seen as funny or cool, will we go against our sense of right and wrong and put someone else down? In order to get laughs from peers and feel liked, will we do something foolish or dangerous on purpose? In order to gain the acceptance of a powerful peer or leader, will we look the other way when they do something wrong? Instant gratification comes easily when we cut corners and go against that voice in our heads that we know is right. But these moments of petty recognition are short-lived and come at an incredibly <coughs> high price. Our integrity, our self-respect, the trust and faith others have in us. These things are the most precious and valuable assets we have. And while it can always be done, it can always be done. When we lose our self-respect and the respect of others, it can take an awful lot of time and effort to replenish. Jesus asks, what good will it be for a man if he gains the world, yet forfeits his soul? My father once described integrity, integrity to me in the following way. We have three selves, the self I am, the self you see, and the self I want to be. When these three are in, in alignment, that is integrity. The self I am, the self you see, the self others see, and the self I want to be, all in unison, that's integrity. When making decisions, 
can be helpful to think about these three selves and to question their alignment. I'd like to end with one more story, the one that the poet and author Maya Angelou told often about the first time she met Tupac Shakur on the set of the movie Poetic Justice. Tupac Shakur, as many of you know, is a famous rapper, actor, activist, with a massive following and seemingly limitless potential, considered one of the greatest rappers of all time. Dr. Angelo found him in a heated argument with another man outside of his movie trailer. He was yelling and swearing and causing such a scene that people were trying to get away. After a number of attempts to get his attention, Dr. Angelo finally broke through to him, asking, when was the last time anyone told you how important you are? Did you know that hundreds of years of struggle were for you so that you could stay alive today? Upon hearing this, Tupac quieted, and he started to weep. And Dr. Angelo wiped his face with her hands and talked to him. This fragile portrait of Tupac Shakur is striking to me because it is so different from the man I remember listening to and seeing in the news and on television when I was young. Mixed in with his more socially conscious music, there was a lot of bravado in his lyrics. And to the public, Tupac was often represented as a criminal, by the media and politicians, as an angry and irreverent young man who was degrading the moral fabric of society. At the same time, Tupac's following in the hip-hop and enter entertainment community could be characterized by unwavering loyalty and blind obedience. He was treated like a powerful king who had the power to make or break careers, and people were desperate to be a part of what they saw as a greater power rather than its target. Despite his best intentions to be a voice for young people in the inner cities, struggling to be treated with respect and dignity, dignity and equal protection under the law, these external factors, being demonized on one side and worshiped by blind followers on the other, trapped an intelligent and introspective young artist inside of a persona that he was never courageous enough to step out of. Make no mistake, Tupac was used to being told he was important. And on the surface, he had the world at his fingertips. But the self he was, the self others saw, and the self he wanted to be was tragically out of sync. <coughs> Tupac was intelligent enough to know that the blind loyalty he received from his followers, under the guise of respect, said more about their own insecurities and fears than it did about his inner qualities. And as a result, I have to imagine he was losing respect for himself even as his popularity was rising to mythic proportions. What he lacked was an honest reminder of his self-worth. By appealing to his worth, Dr. Angelo showed that she cared not about his status or authority in the world of hip-hop music, but rather his innate inner beauty and well-being. She addressed him not like a servant, afraid to look in the eyes of a king, but rather on level ground, eye to eye. Despite his many flaws, Maya Angelou's actions said, I may not like everything you do and the way you sometimes act, but I recognize and validate your pain and I see the best in you. You are important because you can do a lot of good in this world. It's amazing what barriers can be broken down when we show someone respect by listening to them and looking beyond the surface, by empowering them with actions that give grace, honor, and dignity. We all have worthiness that is apart from how we look, who we know, what we achieve, and any other external features, achievements, or accolades. Active and productive members of a community who are grounded in self-respect 
don't feel trapped, and they aren't done once they have achieved a certain title or position. Rather, they feel empowered to continue leading by example and to look outside of themselves and place their attention on bettering their peers, team, classrooms, and communities. So I'll end by saying that the first five weeks of the summer have been really great. And while I'm not sure who it is exactly, I have faith that there is someone among us, someone incredibly important, who's going to work to make the final two weeks of this summer really special. I wonder who.